I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode 11 of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we talk to former Sony Music UK VP of Business Affairs and New Development, a trustee at the British School, and founding director of legal consultancy All Our Business, Dej Mahoney, about his extraordinary journey. Here's what Dej had to say when I asked him why he chose the music industry. It was a beautiful accident, to be honest. I had qualified at the bar as a lawyer. I was working as a young barrister out of the Middle Temple, down there towards the city. And I realised that this really wasn't for me in the longer term. So I just started looking around for something a little bit more uh, flavoursome, a little bit more fun, a little bit more colour, maybe a little bit of travel. I stumbled across a gig at CBS Records, as it then was, and... uh and well, I don't want to say the rest is history, but it was it, it was a beautiful accident, as I say. And has it lived up to your expectation? Oh, sure. I mean, I didn't know anything about the music business apart from having a bit of a record collection. I didn't really know about the business from the inside. It was a bit of a revelation to me that record companies even had lawyers back in the day. So, so I had limited expectations in the sense that I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I landed at CBS Records as it then was in the glory days, late eighties, George Michael's first solo album out, Michael Jackson's bad tour. That's the year I joined. And it was a fabulous time, really. I mean, just to give you a reference, Adrian, I often think back and I think, Alexander O'Neill, who was a Sony artist, uh, sold a million records that year, which <laughs> which is you know difficult to contemplate now, but incredible, really. Uh, it was a, it was a great time, glory years. Unlike a lot of our other guests who had a dream of being in the music business, you stumbled into it as, as a happy accident. But rewinding to a young days growing up, was there a love of music? And if there was, what was he listening to, and what was he dancing to? There was totally a love of music. Um, I have two significantly older brothers. My eldest brother is, uh, you know, a bit of an audiophile. So I kind of grew up on his collection. My time, you know, in my kind of early to mid-teens, I would have been in that Michael Jackson phase, loved sort of the Quincy Jones, James Ingram, Paddy Austin era, loved all that. You know, we're talking kind of early to mid-teens kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, and then later on, kind of, I, I was a big fan of Loose Ends at some point, you know. So, yeah, that that's kind of my, my rough trajectory in the earlier days. But, yeah, always, always loved music. It was a revelation that I could potentially pursue a career as a lawyer in that sphere. So what did the Mahoney parents think of their son moving out from the bar and, you know, a nice, secure career that he studied so long for to work in the very transient world of music. They didn't really get it, to be honest, and and I'm not I'm not sure that they they still they do yet. <laughs> my mother still would rather say that you know my son's a barrister in London, <laughs> but you know I think she has a general sense that uh, a general sense that it's it's worked out pretty well. It definitely wasn't where their heads were at. They were very much thinking, you know, the usual lawyer, doctor, 
kind of pathways. They didn't really know anything about lawyers in the music business. So once you open the doors on your first day at Sony, you walk in, what was it like for you? What did you expect? And what did you find? First thing that slightly surprised me was everyone looked really scruffy. <laughs> I just thought everyone looked really scruffy, which, which kind of surprised me. Funnily enough, my, my boss at the time had encouraged me to, to show up in a suit because I was a suit, if you know what I mean. And, and also a young suit. CBS had a very strong tradition in lawyers, as you might know. A lot of people know that um, Clive Davis was a, a lawyer. And even if you came in at a very junior level as a lawyer, you would have to be interviewed by the chairman. Whereas the chairman wouldn't necessarily interview a marketing manager on a label, he would definitely interview the most junior lawyer. It was kind of interesting. So we were kind of like, a, in those days, this is, we were kind of like a bit, <laughs> a little bit of a breed apart. As I was, I was struck by how scruffy everybody was and also struck by the lack of black folks in, in the building, which, you know, I don't quite know what I was expecting, but I was expecting it to be very significantly different than the Middle Temple barrister situation. And it, it wasn't that different, to be honest. Back in the 1980s, you were a real pioneer. Certainly one of the first black men that I knew that had a seat around the table in the boardroom as a director. You were VP of Business Affairs. You had a big portfolio. You were doing work which was way beyond the scope of a lot of lawyers outside of the contractual side of things. I'm really interested on, on the roles that you played in the company at, at the time. But what kind of responsibility did you feel as a man of colour within that building, not just to other black people, but to yourself as well? My first response to that is that my background in terms of my education and, and my, my training often had me in environments where I was the very significant minority, if not the only one. So I've, I've been very, you know, used to that from quite an early age you know funny enough from from when I first came to first came to England in the mid 70s as a kid and I you know I went to school in the middle of Surrey in the middle of nowhere at a <laughs> at a proper kind of Hogwarts place on the top of a hill <laughs> there wasn't another <laughs> black kid around for 50 miles so, you know, I, I kind of started there and I've been through a lot of similar scenarios. So that sense of alienation, potential alienation, is something that I was quite used to. And because of broadly positive experiences, you know, I've grown to embrace it and embrace and, and kind of and embrace and love my difference. In the context of the music business, I was, you know, I was very conscious that that there weren't any other certainly um any other kind of label business affairs people of color doing what i was doing so i was very conscious of that but it's really to be honest only with the benefit of hindsight that i sort of realize from things that people have said to me and uh, over the years uh, sort of how much of a implied statement that was being in that seat and I, you know, I might have, had I been more conscious of it, I might have actually taken a slightly different career path if I'd been more conscious about it at that time. I mean, I think we we talk about those things a lot more now. I'm involved in a lot more um, groups of conversations addressing those issues now. And I think that um, I, I might have taken a different pathway had I, had I realised 
how important it was to other people. I was really only looking at it from my point of view. I've always taken the responsibility of of being, um, you know, feeling like I'm I'm an ambassador for my people and my family and, you know, all, all, all those good things. But I wasn't really looking at it as a statement within the context of the music business. The great thing, I suppose, in some respects for, for you within that scenario, which there wasn't for many others, was that there was also someone else in the boardroom, the great Lincoln Elias, who we'll talk to at some point. So you have that, that foil. How important was it to be able to have someone reflecting back at you, you know, on, on an equal level as another black man? And was there a sense of kind of mission between you to kind of, first of all, opening the door and once you were there, to maintain the door opening to allow more others to come through behind you? Lincoln and I are still, you know, we're still very much in touch. Everybody knows that he dances to the beat of his own drum. That's a fair point. But there was always a, a bit of an understanding. Uh, there was always a bit of an understanding between us. And in fact, you know, we still reminisce a lot about scenarios going back over 20 years. Towards the end of my time at Sony, there were a handful of us there, you know, Matt Roth, Gordon Hagen, all very accomplished um, guys who know what they're doing and have a view of the world. That felt very strong um, that we, we kind of had a largely, to be honest, a, an unspoken sort of understanding between us as to what we ha- what we had to do, you know, what we had to do and and how and how we had to do it. I'm also interested in the role at Sony as well, Dave, because clearly a lot of responsibility and you developed into different areas as well. Can you expand more on what you were doing during your time at Sony? Because I'm sure people out there that listen and want to be lawyers that see a pathway into the business, potentially through law, may not understand that it's not just about contracts, that there's a whole world out there. So it'd be really good if you could expand further on, on what those opportunities are, what you were able to do whilst you were there. CBS and Sony were probably a bit of an exception relative to other places. There was a lot of emphasis put on the legal side of things. Um, The contracts tended to be pretty tough, um, but it also meant that the lawyers in the business had quite a lot of sway and and were taken quite seriously. And I think if, if you were able to communicate your professional side in a way that was you know, palatable and helpful and positive and constructive, then that kind of helped you branch out into other areas, um, you know, more kind of strategic uh, general management view of, of of the company. At various times, I I had responsibilities as wide as the video department reported to me at some point. It's quite an interesting point because of all the places Sony should be like the perfect synergistic scenario because it has all the divisions, you know, music, TV, film, electronics, computer games, the whole lot. But because of its size, that tended to be a bit of a problem, you know, making that synergy work. I can't speak for it today, but I was always slightly frustrated that it could never quite, I could never quite pull it all together. That's actually how I ended up leaving. I had the privilege to be allowed to do my own stuff on a Friday. So I started doing my own stuff on a Friday, uh, you know, doing a bit of writing, having interesting meetings, developing TV ideas, you know, all, all, all those things. 
and uh, and always trying to draw on my experience. And I got to the point of thinking, I really love my Fridays. I want to do Friday all the time. And so that's what I've tried to take into my new business. Well, it's not so new now at all, but I try to bring that into AOB. AOB is a very kind of broad but all-encompassing word because that's what we try to be. We trade on on rights knowledge and contractual knowledge, but it's it, it could be anything. You know, we do art, we do fine art, we do books, we do music, we do TV, we do sport, we do theatre. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're small, but we do a, a real breadth of stuff, which is kind of what keeps me stimulated. Do you feel that being out of that kind of restrictive world of the corporate has kind of helped you grow as a professional and allowed you, obviously allowed you great opportunities as you've gone? I think it has, in truth. I have no regrets at all about my time at Sony. They were glory years. I met some wonderful people, um, some of whom I'm still in very close contact with, you know, but it is a, it is a business dedicated to, to producing and distributing music primarily. And much as I loved music, the company kind of needed me really to be doing a certain thing within a certain sphere. And I kind of wanted to do a bit more than that. I may not have navigated that conversation <laughs> as, <laughs> as smartly as I might have done. But, you know, you know that I, I can't look back at that too much. Over time, I've managed to carve a scenario where I'm where I'm involved in a lot of things that I'm really passionate about and, and interested in and find very stimulating. So I take that to be a blessing while I'm still drawing on my Sony experience, my legal experience, my commercial experience, they all come together. I recently took on a role as a non-executive chair of an independent music production company, uh, actually one of the leading music production companies, although it's not commercial label business, that's probably, you know, about as immersed as I've been back in the music business for a little while. And that's been very stimulating in itself. So I'm not working as a lawyer in there. I'm coming in more at the, at the strategy, commercial corporate end of things. You also were back doing some work with Warner Chapel for a little while. How did that come about and how did you find it? And go, going back, not full-time, but certainly being more immersed in it than the, for the first time in many years. Yeah, it was a very strange, in a nice way, strange in a kind of surreal way. It came about because I, I was seconded to look after a seat, essentially. Somebody was away ill. And, uh, and so I, I, I came in, I wasn't sure how long I was going to be there, which is also a bit strange, but I was there for six months, maybe just over six months. Yeah, I was maybe there just over six months, six or seven months. First of all, I'd never worked at a publisher's before, so I'd only ever been on the record side. That was interesting to to start immersing myself in in publishing and learning the ropes of publishing, which really speaking, that's kind of where everyone should start, to be honest. <laughs> but anyway, I did it the other way around. When you look back on your career at the starting gate, who were the people that were supportive, mentored you, gave you good advice? My immediate boss in the legal department at Sony is a guy called Jonathan Sternberg, who a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know or have come across. But I still, 
I still write stuff that, you know, he told me. Back in the day, I remember spending, I'd be in his office for two hours with him kind of coaching me. Maybe I needed that much coaching. <laughs> but, but, you know, if you sort of imagine today, Adrian, imagine just sitting opposite a desk with somebody for two hours, like you're in some kind of tutorial, you just don't have the time. Your phone would be blown off the hook and, you know, it's just... It, I just look back and I think, well, how did he how did he make all that time for me? And I think although he might not have known it at the time or seen the results at the time, it kind of gave me a, a very sort of solid foundation, I think, from which to from which to move on. And I think a lot of the time we're in a real hurry and we don't have the foundations that are going to kind of serve us well long, long term. And that can be on a creative level or business level or legal level or whatever. So I, I always really, really appreciate um, appreciate Jonathan Sternberg. Richard Rowe was 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 another one who who was my boss briefly, and uh, and and a gentleman called Tim Bowen who was also kind of uh, in our orbit at the time as well. I think most about Jonathan because of the time he spent with me and. And you and I both know that time is so precious. Absolutely. One of the things that you sent me in an email, which I, I mentioned to you at the, at the top of this before we started recording, but absolutely fascinated me, but it's been running around my head all day long since you wrote it, was it's the following. I'm conscious of having to be a bit sensitive around my relatively privileged, if still challenging pathway. So my question to you is, why so? Because it's complicated. <laughs> Everybody's narrative is a bit different, even though there's certain commonality of experience, for example, as a black person in a particular environment. Um, but the, the reason, and I, I'm not embarrassed about it, it's just the reality. The reason I, I say what I say, and, and I spoke about this um, actually uh, when I went back to speak at my school a few years back, it's only when I got to the music business that I, I started meeting people who'd been told how limited their horizons and opportunities were. I was speaking to a, a young man actually yesterday who was basically telling me that, you know, who, who's actually a, a, an up and coming manager who, who I work with, very talented fellow. And he was telling me that, you know, he he was basically told that um, he should focus on his basketball and he, you know, he wouldn't really, nothing else was really going to happen for him. And, you know, the best he could do is basically stay out of trouble. You know, and that, and that was kind of like the, 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 the pathway or the limit that was put on him. Because of my fortunate pathway in this respect, um, I mentioned... <laughs> my Hogwartsian school that I went to. Well, my brother had been there um, and he left the year before I was there. But when I arrived, and by the way, I arrived, I'd, I'd been at an inner city school in Atlanta, Georgia, which is another long story. <laughs> but so I came from an inner city school in Atlanta, Georgia, elementary school. And before that, a primary school in the Gambia, you know, regular primary school in Gambia. So when, but when I arrived at this, this school, I was expected to be great because my brother had been great. And, you know, it was an unreasonable expectation and it could have gone horribly wrong. But fortunately, I managed to kind of uh, style it out and, you know, uh, fool my way through to, to some degree. And so, 
The reason I mention that is because instead of people telling me what I couldn't do, they actually expected me to be able to do stuff. So I had a, a great start from when I came to when I came to England. I was frankly, I was sent to England <laughs> and, and all the way through my fairly privileged educational pathway. Now, the reason I say it's challenging is because that anybody who's half awake, who's of Gambian origin, doing that pathway will will hit a few roadblocks and bumps along the way. But broadly speaking, there was forward motion and I was trying to ride the bumps and and, and take some people along with me all, all ever since. And is it something that you feel that you're comfortable with and you've come to terms with? Because it's clearly something that's, that resonates somewhere in the recess of your mind. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm a bit of a dinosaur from the 20th century. So what we now refer to as microaggressions, for example, are are things that that you and I grew up with and and kind of navigated. Somebody might say, well, you know, this guy's sleepwalking through life. I, I don't believe I am. You know, I feel like I'm I'm conscious, but but you know, I'm very much about I'm very much about forward motion, positivity and uh, not not dwelling too much confronting situations when i have to but otherwise keeping my eye on the prize and moving forward so in the past 8 or 9 years you've you've, you've sat on the board at brit school you've lectured at the university of of westminster how important is is it for you to firstly pass on the knowledge and experience that you've gained but also hold a hand out to the next generation by being there and sharing your experiences and knowledge. Oh, it's it's absolutely critical. And and the 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 joke is that one of one of the things I, I say to young people that I, you know, spend time with or who who uh <laughs> who have who have the time to to spend with me is 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 how actually it's actually a two-way street. Up to a point, you know, I have experienced in part, and I reckon a, a decent percentage of that is don't do this because I did it. <laughs> you know, a decent percentage of of your mentoring is is trying to make sure that people don't make the same mistakes as you do, as well as, of course, hopefully having learned some positive stuff along the way. So that's huge for me. The other thing that I say is that that they themselves don't ever un- underestimate, as I say to young people, don't ever underestimate how inspiring you are to the person talking to you or supposedly mentoring you because they're feeding off your energy and your enthusiasm. They might be a bit jaded, you know, but you've got it all in front of you and that's enriching as well. Looking at Black Lives Matter, the Black Music Coalition in the UK, and I know you sit slightly outside it now, but... Do you believe that there can be real change within the industry for black people, that there will be opportunity arising and a place for them to have their voices heard around the table long term going forward? I do believe so. I suppose I have to believe so. No, but I, but I genuinely do believe so. I do think that the conversation is sensitive. I think it has to be handled with confidence, but sensitivity. I think it's important to take people with you rather than alienating people who were kind of potential swing voters, if you know what I mean. I'm big on being confident, but only confrontational when it's really necessary. And everybody has their own style. 
but that that's my kind of preferred approach and i think i think it's really important to kind of take people with us uh, uh, but I, I i firmly believe that you know this is there this is a moment and i think all sorts of people who are receptive in a way that they've never been receptive as long as they are handled with appropriate care we celebrated your achievements earlier on your career as black executives looking in and seeing what was possible and as a high achiever you gave us something to aspire to and for us to be ambitious about when you first started out did you actually believe that the levels you achieved at Sony were possible was it even in your hopes and dreams or were you just there to do a job and see where it took you when i first joined i was there just to do a job but the rest of it the rest of it you know with apologies to, to to anybody who might be listening you know that is where my privileged pathway thing comes in my parents didn't say they didn't say either son you got to work twice as hard as everybody else to get anywhere they never said that they also didn't say son you can do whatever you want to do and you can get to wherever you want to do they weren't those kind of parents they were you know they were very interested in my education but that wasn't their vibe um but my the environment my schools that i went to um you know my university i went to and so on all meant that everything was possible i was sort of thinking well i'm doing all right you know i'm doing all right but actually i could do more i could do more not necessarily climb higher up the ladder but i can do more the answer to your question is probably no and it's only after i after i left that i realized left that kind of major label scenario and and I've been sort of talking to people over the years that I realize that um the impact one can have of literally almost literally just sitting in a particular seat at a particular time um representing in you know in the true sense um so obviously you know nobody wants you to be there being a lame duck or not doing anything uh, positive but 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 the symbolism of being there is, is is really important, especially dare I say on the business side. When you look back, Dave, do you regard yourself as a pioneer, a man who's broken boundaries? I don't think of myself as that at all. I think of myself as an ambassador more than a pioneer. And that's a very good answer. So you've now had the company for a number of years, clearly doing incredibly well. You've branched out into other areas outside of music and sport and film and TV. What are your long and short-term remaining ambitions? I mentioned the uh, the, the new chair role that I, I took on recently. Don't want to go into too much detail on that, but I have a, a short to medium-term ambition to see that entity grow and be very successful, which I think it has every opportunity to do. I'm involved with, as, as producer and co-owner, of a musical drama based on the life of Martin Luther King, which we've been developing with Opera Carolina, um, which unfortunately had to be postponed. But I have every hope, dream and belief that that will be uh, a fabulous success. And socioculturally, world-changing is a little bit strong, but will have an impact, will have a universal impact on consciousness um, over time. I look forward to AOB doing more and more in many more of these spheres of entertainment and media and related areas and, and kind of 
working on the convergence and where all, they all intersect uh, and building something really kind of synergistic and positive going forward. Is there a particular moment in your career that is a real highlight for you that you can that you look back with particular fondness? <laughs> That's a top question. I mean, I'm going to say this because it, it's been something that I've been reflecting on recently. I could cite a number of Sony parties during my time, <laughs> which, you know, that uh, during those glory days, those, those younger days of mine, um, and in particular, in particular, um, Michael Jackson at Wembley, kind of, which happened in my first year, which was just, you know, I kind of grew up, I, I know he's a controversial figure now, but I, I grew up with him, you know, there's the sort of soundtrack of my life. Uh, I'd seen the Jacksons actually a few years before when I was at uni. I'd seen the Jacksons at Meadowlands, and then and then you know being at Sony and pretty much being able to print tickets and take all you know all my mates every other night. It was just like Kevin and you know being backstage and the whole thing. It was it was just a, it was just a glory time for a young guy in the business back in the day. Uh, and the the other the other paradoxical moment which wasn't a, a really happy moment but it's a very kind of um strongly impactful moment is delivering my speech at my leaving party at the groucho club i remember the experience very very vividly and funnily enough somebody wrote hand wrote me a letter recently hand wrote me a letter referring to that occasion like within the last couple of months and that was you know that was nearly 20 years ago now so um, so they, so that was a that was a very um a memorable moment for me i remember being totally um exhausted and spent after i delivered my speech but i basically said everything i had to say and it was a real kind of drop the mic kind of situation and I, i'm <laughs> out of here you know I felt very complete and I'd come and I'd done what I had to do and I was out of there. I didn't necessarily feel that, you know, the next week or the next month, but at that moment in time, it was absolutely how I felt and it was right on right on point. If you could go back and give yourself, your young self, one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be and why? I think, um, and, you know, this is, probably a bit too narrow and and based on my own life and career but i think i would say don't be in such a hurry because you can be in a hurry and and end up down a bit of a cul-de-sac for example i mean you you've got to be conscious of time i think you've got to be conscious of time but but when you're when you're young um obviously the time, the time just feels like it's running away from you. <laughs> you look back as an older person and you think, why was I frust so frustrated for those three months, you know, when they didn't give me what I wanted for those three months, <laughs> you know? It doesn't mean you can go to sleep and not be aware of what's going on around you, but don't be in too much of a hurry. The, the other thing is, the other thing I would say is, um, if you're taking advice and feedback and input from people um, as far as possible, and this is difficult in life, in business, in personal relationship, or whatever, try and get that feedback and input from people who aren't going to 
who aren't going to blend their own baggage in their in their advice and feedback because that in itself can either inhibit you or send you down the wrong path or distort your own judgment that's just one to be kind of wary of i i i think quite important difficult to find but important and what's your hope for people of color in the 21st century arts my hope is broadly speaking that we will have more opportunity to tell our stories if i can use that in the broadest terms and uh unfortunately there's a bit of a chicken and egg um factor there because to some degree we need to have people in positions where they are determining the stories that are going to be told obviously that will happen over time and probably relatively slowly but if we keep pushing our stories they will get through and and we've already seen what used to be referred to as minority stories have blown up big time and 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 become mainstream in all areas of the arts so um so yeah so that i would say that was um that was a significant hope Tell, telling our stories because our stories will then inform a, a better appreciation and understanding of um diversity and the people that are referred to as diverse uh, and that in itself uh, i believe will will make for a more positive environment when you look ahead down the road what do you see the legacy of dej mahoney will be that's a good question i mean i i i talk about that stuff a lot um and i i partly because of my background you know i'm i consider myself to be a a a gambian brit you know my mother still lives in the gambia i have very close to my brother who lives in the who's american educated but lives in the gambia and so so i i'm very kind of conscious of my parents original game plan of us all going home and doing great things and so um i i love the idea of i love the idea of a um being involved in the the growth of the music business in africa at at some point or on some level even if i'm only a sounding board for somebody who is actually um be a younger person who's actually fully engaged in that um but i i also have you know i have other sort of educational um educational ambitions i have a few mentees back in the gambia that i look after and kind of encourage and and keep sort of uh on a, a on a positive pathway and of course in this year of all years and our our, our dad was a our dad was a, a physician actually uh um and so and and actually funny enough actually in his latter years worked for the world health organization so in, in this year of all years i'm kind of very conscious of of you know health and and uh and uh you know, high water and hygiene and all those things that that are going to make for a for a better world and and which are largely ignored i got to say in a large you know large part of part of the world so i have i have all that stuff down the line that i think of you know in in the future when you've retired me um adrian i i i think of those things as being you know as much part of hopefully my legacy when i get round to them as 
as anything that I ever did in in music and entertainment. And before we close, days, I'd just like to say I think that there are a number of us that, that over the years when we first started felt that we had an opportunity but never believed it was possible to have a career and go to a level where we could be a director or maybe even run a label. But seeing you and Lincoln and a couple of other guys as we were starting on our journeys gave us real hope, gave us inspiration and gave us a real thought that there was something that we could do ourselves. We could emulate you. So I'd like to say on behalf of a lot of the other black guys who were around in the early 80s, mid 80s, thank you because you showed us the way, you allowed us to have that dream and it's been a pleasure talking to you. So Dej Mahoney, founder of All Our Business, lawyer extraordinaire as I said at the beginning, but also, I'll repeat again, true trailblazer and pioneer. Thank you for joining us on Did You Know? Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. I was tempted to say get out of here, but I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's all true, sir. Believe me. Thank you. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know Pioneers, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Dave for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, and Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and Evie, Ren and David, and all the team at WX. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And please look out for our next episode where we talk with manager, musician and entrepreneur Kwame Kwan about his life and career in the music business today. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.